Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa idea in the 21st century. Making things easy to use is not enough. It takes time to make something meaningful. In this episode of the Iowa Idea podcast, I sit down with Cade Shemhorn. Among the many topics we discussed, we explored design ethics and design responsibility. I've been lucky enough to work alongside Cade on a number of projects. I've always appreciated his thoughtful approach to design and collaboration, so I was delighted when he agreed to join me on the Iowa Idea podcast. Kate talked about what he took away from his time at the Austin Center for Design, also known as AC4D. We discussed how we were both influenced by John Kalko, especially his first book, Thoughts on Interaction Design. As it relates to the craft of design, one principle Kate carries with him from AC4D is the notion of do it again. We cover the importance of being persistent and curious as one works on their craft and the challenges faced in complex design projects. As Cade says in our interview, I'm always surprised it doesn't come easier. Every project is a slog, but most of it's related to taking on more complex challenges. I'd like to thank Cade for joining me for this discussion. I hope you enjoy the episode. So, Cade, it's a pleasure to have you on the Iowa Idea podcast. Uh, yeah. If you don't mind, just uh, first, just telling uh, listeners a little about you. Yeah, so um, by trade, I am a, a user experience designer. And when I tell people that, the, I get a, a wide variety of, um, you know, what is that? Or, you know, or, oh, you know, I have a cousin who does that. You know, it's like, um, I feel like the the idea of user experience design hasn't quite kind of uh, diffused into the population because um, most of the time I tell people, you know, I design software, I'm digital product designer, that kind of thing. Um, and they say, oh, you code. And I do not code. <laughs> um, I, know, I know enough to be uh, a bit dangerous, but I, I really am not a programmer. Um, but people understand, people have like a mental model of what a programmer is, of, of what coding is. Um, I think people struggle a little bit with what do you actually do day to day as a designer of software? So, um, so yeah. Do you, do you provide a, uh, a metaphor or a shorthand for somebody to, to adjust their mental model? Yeah, I, I tend to talk about, you know, things that people are familiar with. So when everybody has a phone, so that's the easy one to go to, um, talking about designing the, the interface of the apps. So like, where do buttons go? What are, what's the, what do the buttons say? Um, and, I, and I think talking about making things easy to use is another really good way of um, helping people understand what it is that I actually do. Thanks. And you live in Iowa City? Yep, I do. And you're second, here for a little while. This is your second tour of duty? It is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so uh, first round, um, I don't know, something like eight years ago, my uh, wife got into audiology school here at the University of Iowa. And um, so moved here from Portland, Oregon. And then, um, so she went through four years of graduate school. We went to Austin, Texas for a few years. 
and then she came back for her PhD. So um, yeah, second tour of duty. Right on. Uh, so want to talk a little bit about uh, design uh, more generally right now. What, what got you interested or how did you end up in the role of designer? Yeah, so um, sometimes I'm really jealous of people who, you know, they, they say, I always wanted to do this thing. I definitely had no idea that I wanted to be a designer when I grew up. Um, I think probably the looking back the closest I can say that I had any inkling or interest was, you know, when I was a kid, I said, oh, I want to be an architect. Because like, you know, again, ideas that are diffuse in, in people's collective consciousness, architect, everybody understands what that is. Um, so I probably always had a bent toward this stuff, but then I took a super circuitous route to get here. Um, you know, I was interested in filmmaking and um, I also had a friend who was in graphic design in college and so was exposed to some of the ideas. And um, when it came to filmmaking, I was, I was really interested in post-production. And so when you um, are editing video, a lot of the times uh, or a lot of the need in terms of skills is to you know do motion graphics or um you know titles you know that kind of stuff and so um it's sort of graphic design adjacent and so then i i got into um developing some skills around like typography and layout and all of that stuff and that allowed me to get basically my first job that where i could really call myself a designer at this really strange company that really like is an anomaly should not exist because they kind of do everything it's this like family-run small business but um but it is a product design company in the sense that they build their own software they deliver training for uh, banks and credit unions and so on like compliance training um but they also have in-house video production for, the tr for delivering the training materials. So they, they have this like uh, video production crew. They also have writers and producers. They have uh, developers and people like, you know, actually delivering the software to, to get the videos out and so on. Um, and then I was brought in as a graphic designer to do layout for those uh, training materials. So it was the first time that I really got exposure into what it takes to deliver, to build and deliver a digital product or digital service, really. Um, and I was exposed to, you know, I, I basically wanted to make that product better. You know, I, I was contributing materials, I was contributing content. Um, but then I was, it was the first time I was able to look and see, okay, this is the stuff that I'm, I'm putting this stuff into a larger system. And so right. I was able to zoom out, um, which is, you know, kind of one of those like foundational concepts of like what it is to be a good designer is ability to kind of zoom out, zoom back in at the small detail, um, zoom, zooming out to see that whole system, see things holistically to see like, what all is going in? How, how are the pieces affecting each other? 
um, in the big Rube Goldberg, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, is it coherent at, at these various levels? Yeah, totally. Um, so I was seeing, you know, opportunities for improving the product. And so then, you know, I was, I was literally like going to the library and checking out books on, I, I found user experience design as like a, a discipline that existed. And I was, you know, giddy and excited that, um, that this was a thing that, right. that, you know, people knew about and talked about. And, um, so, so yeah, I, uh, ended up reading the one of the early books that i that influenced me a lot was um john colco's thoughts on interaction design yes yeah 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 for me the uh volume one of that i still i I mean i can still picture the cover and i still i remember that being really helpful for me as well Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and i don't know if you know that but did you when i started my undergrad career i was a a double major in uh, pre-dentistry and broadcast and film Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, great. Because <laughs> I wasn't sure if I was going to go like... The classic combination. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> the advice I give to uh, all young designers, right? Just yeah, uh, right. go pick two majors and don't stick with either one of them. Uh, <laughs> no, but I, I, what I found interesting too is on the, on the communication side, the broadcast and film, it was actually mm-hmm. through the liberal arts. It was a, a literature course that I had that was, um, it was a computer-based class. So, I mean, this is, this is early, mid-90s, but it was the first, like, a computer. It was called the Information Arcade, Network Computers, and we, didn't, we couldn't turn in papers for this literature course. We had to turn in uh, interactive presentations. And that really got me interested in you know, both the liberal arts and technology. But at that time, I had no idea that there was even a, a discipline of human-computer interaction right or like the the classic stuff out of the bell labs uh was just really getting interested in how do you make things work and then it was like early collaboration with all these other kind of people geeking out on technology well here's how i'm handling this problem and you know there were no standards there were no principles but that that led into like digital design for me but Mm -hmm. i just i do find it interesting a lot of people that i've talked to that there was no true kind of like Here's, here's a very specific program that you, academic program that you do to do this thing. But yeah, I, I, totally. I, I feel like that um, almost stumbling around stuff and learning different systems and then almost metaphors for here's how they like, have all served designers well. Is, oh, yeah, here's so. how I saw it applied here. This is what worked, what didn't. But giving, giving you a broader frame of reference. I do think it's interesting that, that you studied media because uh, so I went in to college as a communications major. I abandoned that after the first year and went to philosophy. But uh, I do think that, um, like still today, one of the disciplines outside of design that most influences me is actually journalism. Um, I think that there's so much overlap in the way that journalists um, like do research, um, engage with their sources um, and and are you know synthesizing a lot, lot a lot of information and producing stories to make sense of the world and so I, I think that journalism is is super instructive for designers. Yeah, I think and I, I agree with you. I, I feel like two two big disciplines that I've seen like with deep history right, from college, journalism and then also library science. Uh, Absolutely, waste. Yeah. But how do you how do you uh, set up complex sets of information so that they're discoverable that, you know, and like you said, on the journalism side, the synthesis that one must do to tell a good story, especially in a, 
uh, really complex uh, element where where I just appreciate really good journalism. Mm-hmm. So uh, we might as well jump into this topic. I know this this is one you and I uh, have talked about in the past and, and find uh, interesting, important uh, is really talk about responsibility in design and mm-hmm. design ethics because I, I still feel like uh, a lot of that is left out of many educational approaches, uh, but also you know, when it comes to design, uh, I'll let you let you start because I know it's an important topic to you. And if you don't mind, like why it's important and how you think about responsibility in design. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and it's a huge topic. Um, and I think to to help a lot of um, people who may not be in design kind of understand why it's really important. Um, one, one thing we can go back to is looking at the development of different professions. Journalism is actually a great example um, where, you know, there was a time uh, where, you know, paper, when papers were f- sort of first developing these business models of um, you know, develop an audience and then like resell that audience through advertising. Um, it, it got really bad, you know, like, uh, <laughs> like yellow, were, yellow journalism. And, yeah. 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 There, there, there was misinformation flying all around and, and, you know, we're almost in a, it's actually a great metaphor because it's basically come back around. And it's we repeating have this, itself with it's a, repeating like, itself. Yeah. Different media or like a new speed. Right. But now, totally. yeah. Cause I don't think there's, I don't think there's really a code of ethics for social media platforms. I mean, some might no. claim there is. Uh, yeah, absolutely not. I mean, you you've got all of these um, activists clamoring now for Facebook to do just to do basic things like, um, be accountable for misinformation and political ads like that. That's just one basic thing that um, a lot of other platforms are actually taking actions on those in the, in that realm um, because it is so consequential. And, and the thing that you mentioned just now, the, the different speed, I think it's, it's hard to overstate just how radically different we're talking about here. We're, we're not talking about, um, you know, the, the transition from like, uh, newsprint to radio to TV. It, it's, it's like that, that's almost like an exponential growth curve that we then just like knocked it out of the park. And now, um, with the internet and these like algorithmically driven, uh, amplification systems, these message amplification systems, it's, it's really hard to overstate just how big that megaphone is and, and how consequential it can be in the hands of actors like, um, you know, big corporate interests or governments. Um, yeah. So. I'll, yeah. And I think also uh, kind of maybe like even unwitting actors, right? Like, like just people that hit like or, uh, share something like haven't even really looked at the article or uh, that headline that headline aligns with my worldview so I'm just going to throw more of that out there where think think about that and <laughs> turn it back up a century 
Uh, I have to cut this article out <laughs> and now I'm going to send it to my friend <laughs> or the post. Right. Right. And so I have to, I have to, the risk reward on this, like from my, from a time perspective, you know, I have to be really committed to sharing that idea. Like now yeah. it's just, and you're like, limited in reach. Yeah. you like, you're, you're literally limited by like how many stamps can I put on a piece of paper you know, in like per minute. Right. And then we get into, you know, mass broadcasting with, with radio and television. And we do see examples in those eras where, um, where it did become much more dangerous. You get, you know, demagogues and so on who are right. capitalizing on uh, the ability to broadcast to a much wider audience. Um, and, and yeah, it, it, it was a problem, but like I said, like this era is, is just so much more and, and, and there's multiple variables involved too. So it's, it's not just the fact that um, any one idea can go viral, has, has this reach. Um, but then there's other kind of like trends in society right now with, um, you know, trolls on online who are you know intentionally spreading disinformation you've got geopolitics involved where governments are spreading misinformation and just capitalizing on the on this like these reach machines right (laughs) so um so yeah it's it's a it's a huge challenge for design to kind of bring it back to uh that idea of um responsibility and design there is a, a generation now of people involved in building these platforms and in, in creating the systems to, that, that enable this stuff to get out in, um, in the volume and with the uh, efficiency, let's say, that it is. And they're really just responding in the end to market forces it's it's about advertising it's there's a fundamental mismatch between let, let's take facebook for as an example where they say publicly our mission is to connect the whole world we're, we're going to connect people together and that sounds great and there was there was a time where everybody was really excited about that but <laughs> times have changed right We've started to recognize as a society that it may not be worth it and all the incursions on privacy and so on, um, all of the misinformation that flies around um, and the manipulation of people's attention and, and their behavior. Um, there, there's, a, there's a mismatch between like the, the actual outcomes are not the those platforms are connecting each other that the actual outcome is that we are plugged into our infinite scroll and our thumbs are just like right. moving and moving <laughs> and and yeah so they're really just selling ads yeah i i, I think it was last year i i was uh at a talk that kim goodwin gave and you know she's starting to call for more of a code of ethics uh, when it when it comes to design, and one of the things she argues uh, 
stepping back for a second with that uh, almost like the need for at uh, university institutions when you're doing research, right? There, there's the IRB, right? the uh, Institutional yeah. Review Board, right? to making making sure that the uh, participants or you know, more often called subjects of the research aren't put in harm. Right. And she feels like we're living in the biggest social science experiment ever with yes. all yes. of these digital platforms. And think you, you said that infinite scroll, uh, is that in your best interest? You know, it, you know, or you hear, you hear, especially like on the marketing side, well, we want a sticky <laughs> experience and like, why does it need to be sticky? What, you know, from, from a, a human perspective, what value is that adding to somebody's life where, uh, I feel like a lot of some of the behavioral science things are getting getting used to play on uh, the organizational or business interests. I think we're like over-indexing on, well, here's how we can keep readers or expand reach. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it, it really is a hard challenge because it it's about, it, it, these are like existential questions for these organizations. Um, Let's you know look at journalism again. They they went through a big crisis in the internet age where they um, lost their revenue around classified ads, and so um, the journalism that has emerged online, the organizations that are um, the the business model that is most easily accessible to them is let's write headlines that that encourage or that provoke emotions. Let's write headlines that result in really strong uh, reactions, either positive or negative. Right. A lot of clickbait kind of mm -hmm. uh, elements where I remember early journalism too, it was like the inverted pyramid. You were supposed to have a very helpful descriptive headline, right? And then as people went down the most important stuff first, rather than mm -hmm. We're going we're gonna to get you to go to page three, column B, <laughs> before we have the big reveal. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, back, back to your question of, like, you know, is this, um, is this useful for people? Um, I, I really just think there, it, it d does go back to this, this difficult mismatch between a fundamentally advertising-based business model, which um, has emerged in the 21st century as like the, the dominant business model. Um, though you, there are examples um, of some organizations trying other things, um, but this, this advertising-driven business model and, and in a largely unregulated um, space of advertising where the, the advertising can show up in any number of places. There, there's basically no, no limits. And there, there are some limits like, right. you know, you can't have alcohol. Uh, there's certain types of things you can't advertise in certain spaces. Um, but a, a great idea there is like, okay, let, let's take some of those limitations, the ideas around where we're limiting advertising and, and scale that up. Let's, let's look at um, maybe it's time, you know, maybe it's like on the weekends, we have less advertising, <laughs> you know, something like yeah. that. Or like, let's look at um, like in our homes, you know, I, my coffee maker and my, and my fridge cannot advertise to me. 
<laughs> like like those things like don't mess with my morning ritual you know yeah. <laughs> so um so we just need uh we j really just need to be more humane <laughs> we need to we need to start looking at people as human beings more and right uh, and and you know look at what what do we want our lives to be like you know so talking about advertising and just influence of advertising, this was uh, from an early undergrad class I had, uh, and uh, Sam Becker was the professor, great great guy, and uh, that's the the communication studies building at uh, University of Iowa is now named after uh, Becker, but he's it was mass media and mass society was the class, and uh, early on, and it's one of those big lectures. There's probably 250 to 300 students in there and he has them uh ask the question uh how many of you feel like you are uh influenced by advertising you know and very few people raise their hand right because we're <laughs> we're objective actors about what we do and we have lots of agency then he asks a quick follow-up what how many of you think other people might be influenced by advertising and like everybody's hand goes up and to me i see that as one of the challenges is that it's it's almost like a advertising version of like Dunning Kruger. It's like we, <laughs> we're we're not aware of where we're getting influenced. We feel others are, and it's just, it's one of the. It's easy to see that influence, but I think that's one of the challenges. Is actually as humans, just all of the buttons that designers know how to push right now to get behavior or reaction. Yes. One yeah. of the one of the questions I have for you. So yeah. this is like, uh, and this might be a cop out, but early in my design career you know we were working on what i believe they were more like web applications and websites and they were really self-contained so they weren't nearly as complex with moving parts as we have now but i felt like what we were trying to do is make this thing easier to use right and that was and maybe that's a cop-out now right we, there wasn't a lot of uh like kind of dark patterns that we were using, right? It was mm -hmm. online education. Can somebody, do they understand the information layout? Can they get to the class? Do they know how to post? But I feel like now a lot of design then is like, oh, if we can get them to do that, we might be able to get them to do this and again, not in their, their interest. And so I'm just kind of curious, is, is it also the, the hyper conductivity that we see compared to where we were that's driving this? Uh, I don't even know if that that question makes sense, but I'm kind of curious about like just how even digital design has evolved in. Yeah, I think. Years. Um, so the way the thing that came to mind there for me is that making things easy to use, which is something I mentioned kind of early. I mentioned this earlier. Yeah, it's the way that most people think about user experience design. Um, I think that making things easy to use is not enough. And I think people have started, people in this profession have started to recognize that. They've started to recognize that you also need to think about, you know, what might happen. What, right. what bad could happen at, yeah. as a result of this. I, I think that, um, there's been a really interesting shift over the last, say, you know, 10, 15 years in, um, in digital product design where designers um, originally were hired kind of at the bottom of the totem pole or the bottom of the ladder, let's say. Right. And um, they were handed a project. And the first time that they were consulted is to say, 
well, if we take an extreme example, it's like, hey, change this button. Like decide on the color of this button, basically. Yeah. Uh, like we, we need something done, go make that happen. And so the designer never really got the opportunity to say, well, should we have the button? Um, what, where is this button located within a system? You know, what is the system? Um, should the system even exist? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, there's all of these like fundamental questions about um, business strategy and business models and, and so on that the designers were relegated to working within these existing systems and, and never had the opportunity to question. So the shift that's happened um, is that designers are starting to, um, you know, quote unquote, get a seat at the table. Um, and that table is, you know, the, the table where decisions like that are made. Um, so you've got designers being hired in uh, C-suite positions. Um, designers are running entire business units and, and making decisions about the fundamental strategies, that, uh, the direction that, that organizations are going in, um, how, how they do what they do, how they serve the people that they um, claim to serve and just having a voice at that level is really important for being able to get beyond make this easy to use get into territory where you're asking larger questions that are, that are really important that and that can be really impactful so if you could wave a magic wand and like increase uh you know kind of the positive outcomes or design responsibility What's something that you would change in, in the design community? You know, um, I struggle with this a lot because I think that um, this, this is a really active conversation in the design community because tech is having such a, in, in a lot of ways, is having a negative influence on society. And so, um, so then designers step in well-meaning, well-intentioned designers step in and they say, what can we do to change the world? What can we do to like make this place better? And I think that a lot of times the tools that they have in their toolbox and that they reach for are inadequate for the job at hand. Um, for being a profession that claims to be very systems driven to claims to be very um to to look at holistic to, to look at things holistically uh, we don't always do a very good job of recognizing that you know making a better widget is not necessarily gonna have the outcome that we want and so expanding that toolbox might mean things like getting better at business strategy um, you know, being able to run organizations, uh, getting better at understanding policy, um, looking at regulation, looking at, you know, and being advocates in those spaces. Um, understanding the larger systems, the larger social systems, the larger um, governing systems that in which we are, a, uh, in which we're working. And, and we don't rec we don't always recognize our part within those larger systems. Yeah, I, I, when 
uh, when I'm feeling kind of uh, maybe maybe down or a little ornery, I mean, one of the, one of the questions that I, I'm thinking about is a lot of times when you're talking to designers, they get really excited about the wicked problem and talking. Yeah, I solve wicked. We <laughs> there's no shortage of like heavy duty wicked problems out there, but it seems like we kind of shy away from from those about like you know equity equity sustainability um and and i just i i find that curious I, I, and i i know i'm painting with a broad brush but it's just i find it interesting that it's like we celebrate the wicked problem then when confronted with it you know well actually i'm just gonna go push pixels now <laughs> yeah i think we we need to be better like coalition builders i mean that that's a really interesting skill set that designers could be uh you know, really developing is being better organizers, pulling people together, looking across the systems, and then and and not necessarily saying we have to do it all, um, but being really inclusive, uh, identifying partners, and and bringing in because um, because you know you look out there, there, there's a lot of people working on a lot of stuff, and they're doing great work. Right, and and right. so, like, how, how do we stitch that together? How do we start to weave a fabric um, that brings in, you know, advocates uh, at the policy level, that brings in, um, you know, legal protection, you know, for uh, people who wouldn't otherwise have a voice, um, that, that also, yes, makes products and services in those systems easier to use right it, it also has a it plays a role um but there is it's this larger system that yeah we need to start developing um if we really are going to take on wicked problems like you said um and, that, and that's a that's a uh, topic that's pretty near and dear to my heart uh, because i came out of um i spent a year at um, austin center for design in Austin, Texas, um, shortened AC40. So as I mentioned earlier that um, John Kolko was one of my early influences in interaction design. He started this school and I kind of by happenstance ended up moving to Austin because my wife got a job there and um, was already interested in going to the school and um, moved in down the street from them actually. Just, <laughs> <laughs> it was stars aligned and and so i i signed up and uh spent a year of my life really devoted to understanding the space of um wicked problems um social entrepreneurship as you know one approach to dealing with wicked problems um but you know like i said i i think that even social entrepreneurship as a space um sometimes the, the people working in that space kind of think a little too small. They're, they're thinking um, that that is by no means the, the case for everyone. Right. But, yep. uh, but people who are just sort of initially exposed to that space, as I was um, at that time, um, think it's kind of a silver bullet. And like what I, what I came away with after that year was that Nothing is easy. Anything <laughs> worth doing requires kicking and screaming and like dragging the thing into the world. 
and it's going to require cooperation between a lot of people. Yeah, uh, just because that's, you know, with starting the, uh, the Iowa Ideas podcast, I mean, one of the things I'm really interested in is this, this idea, of, like, I believe strongly related to craft are notions of collaboration, different mm-hmm. forms of, you know, old forms might have been like a, a master craftsperson and apprentice, right? There is a form, of, but now like the need for, for collaboration, like you're talking about with wicked problems are policymakers, uh, subject matter experts from different fields, how we bring them together. But another one is persistent. So when you're talking about that, yes. like kicking and dragging, and I feel like uh, uh, some of the craftspeople that I, I really respect, uh, that's, that's kind of the um, almost counterintuitive. You look at their craft and it looks like so elegant or so well done. That, and it's like, oh, it must come so easy to them. And then you realize, no, they're putting in reps, right? And they're, all, and they're, they're working to get better and better at what they do. And it's, it's not easy. Um, yeah, so I don't I'm, know if that, if that aligns with also like some of, some of your learning from uh, AC40. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think it's... Um, I'm I'm constantly surprised, like, even as I do become more confident with um, the skills that I need to do my job effectively, and and, um, and I think that, yeah, I'm, I'm basically always surprised that it doesn't come easier, <laughs> that, that every, every project you pick up is a slog. And, and part of that is probably also that as you develop, as, um, as your craft and practice develops, you then take on harder problems. You take on more responsibility. Right. Um, and so it feels like you are, um, it feels like everything is a slog, uh, but really what you're trying to do is more and more and more all the time. Um, so yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure, uh, in that balance, like, uh, if I'm not sure if it is the case that things are always just hard or if I am taking on harder things. <laughs> well, I, I think as we grow, I, one of my uncles who was a professor, I remember him describing academic degrees like, the, and it, it's stuck with me. It was like, when you get your bachelor's degree, you think you know everything. When you get your master's degree, you realize you don't know anything. And then when you get your PhD, you realize nobody knows anything. <laughs> it's like it's like everything becomes yes. more complex. Mm-hmm. Uh, like there, there's times that I'm fascinated that as a society, like everybody can generally like get on their, you know, get their pants on, feed themselves, mm-hmm. and it's a miracle. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's a miracle that we haven't devolved into like some Mad Max hellscape. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So a question for you, because I'm like I'm a big fan of Colco's. Uh, work and i really appreciate his his writing um and i i feel like he does a lot of in-depth writing and so i feel like you also have to you have to want to stick with an idea that he's teasing out but i mm-hmm. i really appreciate his his ability to be very thorough in both his writing and explanation but i'm i'm curious on what did you take away from from him uh, what like just from a, a a learning perspective or influence perspective yeah honestly like the so at AC40, at least uh, when I was there in the, in the space where I was, um, they've since moved spaces um, and it's, they're in this great space now. Um, but on the walls, lining the top of the walls were a bunch of principles. Um, 
just literally printed out on eight and a half by 11 sheets, uh, a bunch of principles for, um, for success in uh, design. And the one that sticks with me, and I think I'm getting it right, but it, it's just, you know, been drilled into my head is to do it again. And so going back to that idea of persistence, it, it's like, it's the, it's the thing that I think, um, like if I look at, you know, different fields, like you look at great writers, what they, some of the writers that I find that I respect the most are the ones that are like, yeah, I wrote that like a hundred different times, like that same sentence. Right. I, re- I revised it a bunch of times in like beyond what normal humans would think is reasonable. I like, I hammered at this thing until it was good. And so I think that is, is probably one of the things that I, um, that I felt was most valuable coming out of AC40 was really just do it again. I, I love that that aligns with, and I, I've joked with people in my career, but uh, influence from, from sports growing up, but I can still like hear a coach's whistle, run it again, mm-hmm. run it again. And right, it's, and then I find like the, these different areas where it's, uh, you have to practice, right? You have mm-hmm. to commit to practicing. And yet a lot of the business world is, oh, I have this presentation. I'm just going to throw some slides together. Let's see what happens. Yep. <laughs> Because I've got another one right after that. Right, right. Rather than like, am I really honing this or getting, you know, getting better at my craft? Right, right. But at the same time, like, um, there are some business leaders that I, um, that I find that I do have a lot of respect for. And, and when that, when I recognize that, it's usually those that are kind of willing to acknowledge, willing to take the time yeah, really willing to take the time to, to recognize that it takes time to create something meaningful. It takes time to create something um, worth doing, that, that, <laughs> that refinement yeah. takes time. Um, now, obviously, that's, you know, in conflict with the, like, time is money, move fast, um, let's get stuff out. And, and there definitely is a balance there. Um, but long term, I think it's much more successful uh, to do things with intention, do things thoughtfully, do things carefully. Um, yeah, yeah. I think then, that yeah. that uh, intentionality doesn't have to be like a uh, uh, at the cost of speed, right? They're they're not mutually exclusive. Um, and I think that some of it too is also as as you get your reps in, so to speak, then you can do that other work faster. Right. It's, uh, but I, I do, I see that as a team challenge, especially in the digital space where uh, a lot of agile in my, my view is over indexed on speed. Mm-hmm. Right? And, mm-hmm. and so then, and not enough on iteration, <laughs> iteration and accuracy. Right. And so yeah. it's like, we'll get it out it, the door or we'll get it we'll, out the door and then we'll never touch it again. Right. When, when we'll we throw really, the backlog. <laughs> we should be doing it again. <laughs> yeah. Where I always, the scene from uh, Raiders of Lost Ark, right. When they hide the Ark and like just that huge warehouse, that's, that's every time I hear somebody talk about st- sticking something in the backlog, that's the image in my head of just, that's never going to be found again. 
it's actually meant to never be found again in some <laughs> <Right>. circumstances. <laughs> yeah, that's great. So is there other uh, other kind of gems that, you know, from, from mentors that stick with you? So you, talk, you talked about one of the principles, uh, but are there other, other ideas or, or notions that have stuck with you that help you with your, your craft? Um, the thing that comes to mind right away is curiosity. So um, I, I just think about to the degree that I've been a successful designer, I feel like I look back on the development of my craft, of my practice, and it is an accumulation of, um, of observation in a, a across a wide spectrum of uh, of disciplines of um, just drawing from all kinds of different places it's like one of the core ideas in design is synthesis uh, is taking information um, you know from people from human behavior um, kind of smashing it together generating new ideas um, creating novelty creating um, innovation yeah and that doesn't come from a narrow focus that comes from pulling ideas that seeming that might even be totally unrelated. Like I'm, I'm a huge believer in um, like interdisciplinary approaches to things. Um, Like in academia, it's, it's often um, you often run into people who, and for good reason, um, people subscribe to this idea of like staying in your lane. So, right. you know, when you get your PhD, for example, you um, spend all this time learning how to create knowledge using a particular set of tools, a particular proven set of methods that generates knowledge within this narrow like scope. That's fantastic. We need people in the world who are focused on pushing the boundaries of knowledge out just a little bit further again and again and again, because that's how you generate you know, new right. knowledge. But designers have a different focus. They're, they're about taking what's already existing in the world, pulling it together, smashing it against each other, making sparks, you know, and, and then creating fire, you know, like, <laughs> like <laughs> let's, let's create something new in the world um, and, and new and useful, you know, something that people can get um, benefit from. We, we don't, that's, that's really the thing that um, I think people quibble about this. Uh, but to me, it's really the difference, the dividing line between like art and design is design is about intentional intentionality um, intentionally building things, making things, creating things for people to use to get benefit from. So, so yeah, I think the only way to do that is curiosity, is having a, a open eyes and observing in a, in, a wide, um, in a wide way across lots of different disciplines. And that's, that's a muscle that needs to be developed, you know. So. Yeah, I think the curiosity, you know, when you were talking about that, because it was also, you know, we were talking about uh, 
synthesis is just an incredible, right? You have kind of the analysis of breaking things down into modular parts, right? And then synthesizing for themes, but then uh, the notion of kind of uh, abductive knowledge or abductive reasoning, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? That, uh, you know, or, I wish I could remember the, the uh, I believe it's the University of Toronto's business school. I think their dean refers to abductive as, you know, the, uh, um, it's kind of the, the science of what might be or the, of, you know, the possibility of what might be where mm-hmm. a lot of us have spent time and, and it's, it's drilled into us, right, about how to be deductive or inductive if, you know, we're, we're doing a lots of disciplined thinking. And I think we, we lose almost that creative collaboration. Like you said, the, uh-huh. the sparks, like if these things collide, you know, what might that be? Um, and I, those are really fun <laughs> design and innovation sessions for me too, is when we can embrace the abductive, but the, uh-huh. it's, it's always the tyranny of time and the immediate that seem to be bearing down against us. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, uh, you can't, so that that was another thing that came out of AC40 was um, they were always this mantra of trust the process. You have to, because there is that unknown element in a business environment, for example, what you, what business is constantly trying to do the last hundred years of business is about operationalizing a set of processes to create profit. And, and so and serve you know customers like an ex- a fair exchange of value, um, but it, it it's about operationalizing that so that it gets more and more and more efficient over time. Right. And right. design is fundamentally uh, about creativity, about um, like yes, there's a process, but there's some of it that that can't be super well controlled and, and the ideas you have to trust that a good design process is going to generate worthwhile ideas. Right. Yeah. I, and I, I see, I see those clashes almost culturally where I see something between traditional business, which mm-hmm. focused on optimization uh, versus design, right. Exploring new things. Uh, and again, they, they, they don't have to be mutually exclusive, mm-hmm. but, but that challenge is yeah, the, the specialization of an organization over time. It, that's where it, it sustains itself is through its efficiency. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. It, it's almost a risk averse culture. Like here's how we've solved yep. the problem. I think the challenge becomes when the ecosystem around them grows from, they had like a tame or focused problem. Here's how we've always done this to the world's changed. And what does that mean to us? And then the level of complexity, right? That just complex systems don't yield to previous best practices. And you have people then doubling down on past mm-hmm. practices, right? And then frustration sets in. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting to see the dynamics that, because um, any one organization is, is going to be subject to the pressures involved there where they have to innovate, they have to compete within an environment. Um, within a particular, you know, historical context, within a particular market context. Um, and so those pressures are going to be there. The, it is in, interesting then to see how the organization responds. So you get situations where um, an old staid corporate entity will create a totally separate innovation arm. And they, so they have this, this, 
organization that's kind of like a wing off to the side where it's like, okay, we've got all our creative people over there and then, and we're, we're going to keep our culture intact and, and we're, we're going to shield that off from, uh, you know, rocking the boat. Um, I think a, a much more healthy approach is that everyone has a, a bit of a culture of innovation baked into processes throughout the entire organization so that, um, so that any, even if you've got a, um, even if you've got a product or a service or something that's like really well refined, it's really, um, it's made super efficient the people that are responsible for uh for being involved for being involved with that and, and keeping it going still have their eyes out for risks they still have their eyes right. out for uh potential competition for and they still have the like their hands on a steering wheel that that, that can turn you know yeah. so i mean just given given kind of the 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 very specific time that we're in right with coronavirus and how mm-hmm. how the, the world the business world is is impacted by this that um that's where i'm seeing kind of these these optimized systems like you you look at a system it becomes so optimized that it's it's so finely tuned that one one piece gets loose it feels mm-hmm. like the whole thing collapses and I, I think some businesses that have been so focused on efficiency and proud that we don't have redundant elements i think then they've they've seen where they they've lost important parts, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. to me, then the whole thing starts to crumble. And whether that's we're going to be super efficient because we're you know we're not gonna we're not gonna keep money in the bank, right? <laughs> or uh, we we became really efficient. We only had one of this type of person. Well, that person can't show up. Right? And I've just seen uh, to me, it's fascinating from a systems perspective uh, that that how optimization can actually then weaken. It when when something unknown becomes in inge- I mean right it, it, like city I grew up in Rockford Illinois used to be known as the forest city because it had these gorgeous elm trees that would uh, create kind of canopies over the streets right and uh, but then it, it became it was all elm trees right? and then Dutch elm disease strikes right it was mm-hmm. it was something that was unforeseen it hits and it all these elm trees were, and then Rockford lost a, a key piece of its beauty there. But I, I see that similar to organizations is that they kind of over index on one thing. Mm-hmm. And if it's something they haven't planned for, it can just disrupt the whole system. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I heard somebody the other day uh, talking about how, how just how hard it is to build resilient organizations how hard it is to build resilient institutions. Mm-hmm. And, and part of that resiliency is, is things like, you know, being able to hire people and provide them good benefits, you know, like right. so, something like that. And, and we don't, um, we basically don't celebrate the, we don't celebrate that as a discipline. We don't celebrate institution building as a, um, as a focused area that, that you can, you know, develop skills around, um, you know, there, there's definitely like organizational leaders share 
amongst themselves in pockets. Um, but as a society, we don't kind of talk about enough the, the values that we really want to um, instill in various institutions and then, um, and then celebrate the, the hard work of actually developing those institutions in a way that aligns with our values, aligns with our ethics. Right, right. Yeah, you making me this uh, old story. Uh, my my dad and I had talked about. So I'm a big believer in like dramatic personas, right? In in like the way we view the world, uh, just heroes, villains, etc. And uh, in firefighting, there like just there's a very heroic drama around like the firefighter rescuing people. Uh, mm-hmm. But the most important work is usually done by the fire inspector, right? Like you know, like are you are you keep you know let's prevent the fire in the first place. Mm. Right. But there's no, there, there's, there's no Chicago fire inspector show. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, uh, they even had to jazz up De Niro in uh, backdraft to be the fire inspector had to be a little bit more interesting, but it's, those are things that I find interesting too, is like some of that important work that uh, like design is invisible. Right. But so it doesn't get celebrated. Yes. Uh, I mean, right here in Iowa city, we have, uh, these great efforts by um, by the city to do like coalition building where it where it did not exist previously. So there are um, like public services representatives from public services, uh, from police, from uh, mental health institutions, from uh, the shelter house here, the uh, like primary service provider for the homeless in Iowa City. Um, kind of organizer of a lot of services they're pulling together and doing this this work to um to make it's it's essentially hidden work that that really ends up that the outcome is just reduced load on services it's um increased access to those services to the people that need it desperately um it's keeping those people out of ERs. It's keeping those people out of jails. Um, it, it's providing mental health services to to folks. And and yeah, I think if you ask most people in Iowa City, they wouldn't even know that's happening or that it did happen. Yeah, but you notice when it's not working, right? That's I think one of, the hard, one of the hard parts is that it seems like there's a lot of people with uh, you know kind of mental illness make, disrupting my life, or there's more mm-hmm. crime. But yeah, when things are going well, it's hard to it's hard to acknowledge that these the the hard the hard behind the scenes work that goes on to make yeah. that. So, so I, I think that what <laughs> we got to find a way to celebrate yeah. that kind of stuff. We got to find a way to make that like you know, people need to be proud of living in the place where they live based because of things like that. Yeah. Yeah. By chance, did you, uh, a couple, a couple years ago, there was a TEDx in Iowa city and one of the, one of the speakers, mm-hmm. uh, his talk was on, uh, lovable cities. Uh, yes. like, and it was like, you know, a play on the word, a livable city, but, and like, what are the things that make it lovable? And I did, I did appreciate that as like digging in on, yeah, what, what does make a community lovable and not just simply livable? Yeah, absolutely. I, I actually think about that all the time. Um, I, I don't know the name of the, um, the person I'd have to go back and look, but um, the idea that he, um, that I took away was the love notes to the city 
Yeah. And a love note that it's really just a metaphor for um, if you ask any one person what they love about the place that they are from, what do they mention? What, what are the things that come up when you ask them? And so, you know, it, it could be, um, it could be like a view over the river or it could be like the, the relatively new Hancher building in Iowa city. Right, it's, right. it's like just beautiful building right on the, on the river there. Um, and you can see it from a bunch of different places, um, coming around, um, like driving through Iowa city, um, the children's hospital, uh, that, that went up recently. Like that's another one that I think is people love. Uh, and they, they've created this ritual with the, uh, with the, the stadium and the wave. Yeah. So everybody, uh, waves to the children in the children's hospital from the stadium. Like those are love notes to the city and it, it creates this, um, very unique and specific fabric of like what it is to live in a place. Right. And yeah. So, uh, Cade, one, one last question for you, uh, today, uh, what advice might you have for other designers? Yeah. Um, I think going back to, you know, I can only draw from my personal experience and, um, one thing that I feel like has uh, benefited me over the years is is not worrying too much when you are developing skills, especially early in your career, not worrying too much about how that's going to help you, <laughs> you know, yeah. like develop a wide set of skills and do so in a way that, um, that pulls together a lot of things that, that you really enjoy, that you love. Um, because, you know, I, I can't tell you how many hours I spent just like digging in and learning how to do like motion graphics or how many hours I spent trying to learn to code myself. And so like, I, I never got to a place where it was like, okay, I'm, I'm actually a programmer or I know how to do that. But it turned out to be very, very beneficial because I work with a lot of developers. And so I can, I can speak their language. I uh, can understand some of the limitations of the technology that I'm working with. Um, but at the time when I was, you know, just, I was just interested in playing with computers. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> or, or like whatever it yeah. is that, that I, you know, was interested in at the time, I spent so many hours just like sometimes just banging your head against the wall and not really knowing where it's going to go. And so, um, I also understand that's a bit of a privileged position. Um, but you know, if you can, if you're in that position and you can afford the, the time, um, early in your career to develop a, a wide variety of skills, um, it's going to pay off in some way. Right. You know, it, so go wide as well as deep. Right on. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate uh, you taking the time and it was, it was so good to talk to you again. Yeah, absolutely. It was a pleasure.